Here at Deer Creek, we are making our way through a sermon series on the New Testament book called Mark. And uh, Mark is toward the back of the Bible in the New Testament. So if you have a Bible, uh, you're welcome to turn there. Or if you have a phone app, you could turn there. This morning, we're looking at Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And Mark focuses our attention on some very important questions uh, for all of us, no matter who we are, to reflect on. Like, who is Jesus? And what did he do? And then what does it mean to follow him? In fact, that's one of the biggest themes in the Gospel of Mark is the theme of following Jesus or being a disciple, which simply means being a follower of Jesus. So what does that mean? And following Jesus is going to be largely determined by who he is. What it looks like to be a disciple or follower of Jesus is going to be determined by who Jesus actually is. And so our goal as we look at God's word is to see the real Jesus as he's revealed to us in God's word. And so this morning in the passage that we're going to look at, we're going to see the authority of the healer who invites us to follow him. And that's what Jesus is doing right now, actually. As we look at his word, he is inviting each of us, no matter who we are, to follow him, to find our life in him, to be satisfied by him, and actually to orient our lives around him and his priorities. And so Mark, in the very first verse of his gospel, told us that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel. And gospel means good news. And Mark has good news for us this morning, no matter who you are. Whether you're here this morning and you are mourning some kind of loss, whether you're experiencing a lot of loneliness, whether you are feeling attacked by Satan, feeling oppressed by evil, or whether you're just overwhelmed by temptation and your own struggles, and you long to be free from fear free from sin. Mark has good news for you this morning. So as we prepare to dive into this passage, let me ask you, if you could ask for one thing and know that you would get it, what would you ask for? What is the one thing that if you were to get it, you think would finally make you happy, would make you content? What is the one thing that if you could ask Jesus to fix you would ask him to, and then you would know that you would be okay. Well, in this story, what we're going to see is that that Jesus is compassionate towards people like us. He's compassionate towards our needs, and he's really interested in meeting our needs, but he wants to take us deeper than what we typically tend to focus on. He wants to take us deeper than our immediate desires to what he knows is our truest need. And so if you're able, let me invite you to stand for the hearing of God's word. This is Mark chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. 
And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed and walk. But that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let me pray for us. Our great God, our hearts are restless and they're longing, maybe in ways that we don't even recognize. Holy Spirit, we pray that you would Open our eyes to your word this morning and show us Jesus. I pray especially for our friends who are here this morning and and maybe just investigating who Jesus is for the first time, exploring who he is and what he did, wondering if, if he can really be trusted. I pray that you would let us see Jesus as both beautiful and believable. I pray that you would show us the ways in which he fulfills our deepest longings. And I pray that you would make him to be the great joy and desire of our hearts, that we might trust him and desire to follow him. We pray this in his name. Amen. When I was a junior in high school, I had a a very serious accident that, that almost took my life. My friends and I used to go rappelling off of parking garages, you know, descending on ropes. And it's not something that I would encourage you to do. It wasn't legal. We were trespassing. So um, that was a part of my past. Just, um, but one night we were, uh, we were doing this and we were, we were kind of rushing and we were overly confident and not being particularly careful in our setup. And I took a serious fall uh, from the top of a seven-story parking garage and only had a little bit of friction uh, through my hand and a single strand of a barbed wire fence that slowed and broke my fall. And a friend came rushing down to me to see if I was alive. And I was laying there looking up at the stars and, um, and I said to him, uh, you know, I'd already wiggled my toes and my fingers. I knew that I wasn't, wasn't paralyzed. And so I said to my friend, you know, I think I'm all right. I just have, I just have a little, little concussion. What I didn't know because I was in shock and I couldn't feel it yet was that um, amongst other injuries, my femur was, was shattered in two. It was um, completely split and, uh, and my leg was contorted. So it looked like my leg was bent, but it wasn't bent at the knee. Uh, it was really bad. And, uh, and, and so it wasn't until another friend came down and said, dude, look at your leg that I realized that, oh, I'm actually in pretty critical condition. Sometimes we can be confident of our own assessment of our condition and think that we know what we really need, but we can be mistaken because we can't always see or feel our own deepest need. 
We might think we know what we most need. We might think that we know what we need in order to be happy, to be content, to be fulfilled in life, to be satisfied. You probably have those things, things that you think you need to be happy and content. What are they? What do you think that you really need in order to be fulfilled and satisfied? Something that you think, if I had it, I would really and finally be happy. I'd be content. Then I'd feel like life was okay. Maybe I would feel like, finally, I'm okay. What is it for you? It might be making a particular team, a sports team, or being a part of a musical group or play. It might be being admitted to a particular school. It might be finally, finally being publicly acknowledged in your workplace for your performance. Maybe it would be having somebody in your life who is romantically interested in you. Maybe it would be finally being being healed of a disease or a disability. Well, for the man in this story, it was really obvious He was a paralytic and he couldn't walk. Imagine how much this man must have longed to walk, to run, to be able to take care of himself and provide for himself. And Mark tells us in verse one that Jesus returned to Capernaum, which apparently was his home base at the time. And the last time that Jesus was in Capernaum, which we looked at in chapter one, in verses 33 and 34, Mark told us that the whole city was gathered together at the door and he, that's Jesus, healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And so everybody was scrambling to be around Jesus because everybody wanted a miracle. But what Jesus actually did was he left. He left the crowds in order to go preach in other towns. But now he's back. And people were beginning to become aware that Jesus is back. And you can imagine the excitement that must have been building as Jesus is back and people are making their way to the house where he is. Mark tells us, verse 2, that so many people crowded into the house that there was no more room. And he says, Jesus was preaching the word to them. That's what Jesus came to do. That was his priority. That was his greatest concern. And what does that, what does that mean that Jesus was preaching the word to him? them. Well, Mark told us at the beginning in, in chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, that after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Gospel is that word that we've been hearing that means good news. It means good news, not good advice. It's not good advice about how people like us can be better or do better. It's good news about how people like us can be rescued because of what God has already done. And Jesus is telling these people who are gathered this good news of what God has done. And in verse three, four friends show up carrying this paralytic on his bed in order to see Jesus. And you can imagine what must have been going through this man's mind. He was probably beginning to think of what it would be like to walk, even to run. Imagine the hopefulness and the expectation as they began to get closer to the house. What problems or challenges in your own life would motivate you to seek out Jesus? Or what what problems or challenges have motivated you 
to seek out Jesus, believing that he really could help you. I wonder, is there anything that you right now are hoping that Jesus will do for you? What is that thing? When verse 4, we're told that, that these friends and the paralytic can't get near Jesus because of the crowd, and yet they're undeterred, undeterred. So what they do is they take the outside stairs up onto what would have been a flat roof, and the roof would have been made of mud and sticks that were laid over beams. And so the friends begin to dig a hole in the roof. You can almost sense their desperation their determination as they are literally clawing through the roof in order to get their friend to Jesus. One of my former seminary professors, a man named Dan Doriani, in talking about this text said that in contemporary Christianity, we often talk about God opening doors and God closing doors. But what this passage illustrates is that sometimes the door is open and sometimes it's closed, but sometimes... God is calling us to rip the door off the hinges. Sometimes, even as God is sovereignly in control of our circumstances, there are barriers and obstacles in our way, things that are hard, that are challenging, maybe even painful, but rather than just sit there and hope that they go away, what faith actually looks like is moving into those challenges, moving into those obstacles. And that's how we see these friends acting on their faith. So imagine the scene. There's a packed house. People are pressed together. There's no social distancing whatsoever. And Jesus is preaching. And everybody's captivated by his words. And then dust and debris start falling in front of him and on Jesus' head and probably on the people sitting around. And eventually light starts streaming in through the ceiling and there's beams of light coming through this dust. And probably at some point Jesus stopped preaching because everybody would have been so distracted because this gaping hole is opening up above him large enough that they could lower a bed through. And these friends lower their friend, their paralyzed friend, on a stretcher down with ropes right in front of Jesus. And so here in front of Jesus is this paralyzed man. His physical need is so obvious. And Jesus, when he saw their faith, verse 5, said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now that's a bit unexpected, isn't it? I mean, how would you feel if Jesus said that to you in this circumstance? You came seeking healing, not forgiveness. Jesus, can't you see what I need? It's so obvious. But what is Jesus communicating to us about our greatest need? He's saying, in a sense, I know you have physical needs and they are real and I care about those. And in fact, restoring your body is actually part of what I came to ultimately do and one day will do. But your greatest need, your deepest need, is not in your arms or your legs, but it's actually in your heart. Your greatest problem is actually your sin. And your greatest need is to have that sin forgiven. 
I'm sure that many of you are familiar with C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia series. Maybe you've read the books or seen the movie. And in the third book, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, we're introduced to this boy named Eustace Scrub, which is a rather unfortunate name, but very fitting for this bratty little kid that nobody really likes. And in this story, Eustace finds himself on this boat uh, with two children, Edmund and Lucy, and with King Caspian. And at one point in the story, they stop on this island, and Eustace, um, like usual, is shirking his responsibilities, not helping out with chores, but he goes off on his own on a hike, and he finds a cave that's filled with dragon treasure, and he ends up going to sleep with his greedy little heart, thinking about what he's going to be able to do with all of this treasure. But when he wakes up, he's surprised to find out that he has actually himself turned into a dragon. And he's big and he's ugly and he can't talk to his friends. And he realizes that he's not going to be able to fit on the boat to leave the island. And he's feeling helpless and he's ashamed of who he is. And he can't do anything about it. And finally, the lion in the story, Aslan, comes to him and takes him up the mountain to a well of water and tells Eustace, now a dragon, to undress. And so Eustace the dragon starts to claw at his, at his dragon skin and tear. And eventually he's able to pull off a lair, like a snake shedding its skin. But what he finds is that there's another lair underneath. And so he goes to work pulling that off. But again, there's another lair. No matter how much skin he's able to remove, there's always another layer. And finally, Aslan the lion says to him, I'm going to have to undress you. And Eustace says that the lion took his claws and it felt like he was piercing his heart. And it hurt so bad, but the lion was able to rip all the way down and pull off all of the dragon skin. And then he took the now boy Eustace and threw him in the water and washed him. Like Eustace, our problem is not skin deep. Our dragonness isn't just skin deep. It goes to the heart. And what we need is someone who can go deeper than we can, who can go all the way to the heart to heal us and restore us. Have you seen the depth of your own need? Are you willing to accept Jesus's assessment of you? As painful and uncomfortable as that might be, as offensive as it might be, to hear Jesus say what we're really like, what we really need? Or is everything always okay with you? Are you able to acknowledge or talk about your own weakness, struggles, even what the Bible calls sin? Well, here's a, a question. Are you able to say that you're sorry? Or is that something that you struggle with? And maybe, maybe you feel like there's really very few occasions in your life that would actually call for that or necessitate that. And the reality is that the extent to which we see our own need of forgiveness is the extent to which we understand this gospel or this good news. Because the gospel is actually not 
work hard, try hard, clean yourself up, and if you do well enough, then Jesus will love you. The gospel is actually that, that you are far more messed up than you possibly imagine, that your problem goes way deeper than the surface. But at the same time, because of Jesus and what he's done, you can be more loved and more accepted than you ever imagined possible. And that's wonderful because it means that you don't have to fix yourself. And if you've tried to fix yourself, you've probably come to realize that you actually can't fix yourself. It's wonderful news because you don't have to heal yourself. And you can't heal yourself. But Jesus can, and he will. And so when Jesus says to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven, some people are not that excited about this. They're not pleased. In fact, they're starting to get angry. Mark tells us in verses 6 and 7 that the scribes, who are the religious leaders, were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Why are they so upset? They're so upset because they recognize that Jesus is claiming that he can do something that only God can do. They say, who can forgive sins but God alone? And you know what? They are absolutely right. And that's what the Bible says throughout. The whole Old Testament has countless examples of God being the one, the only one who forgives sins. So Psalm 103 verses 2 through 3 says, bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases. In, in Isaiah 43, 25, we read these words, God himself says, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And then Micah 7, 18 says, who is a God like you, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgression? And so when Jesus tells this paralyzed man that his sins are forgiven, these religious leaders uh, recognize that Jesus is claiming to do something that only God can do, that Jesus is claiming to be God. So if you've ever heard or thought, you know what, I don't know that Jesus himself ever claimed to be God. Here is one of countless examples where Jesus himself is claiming to be God. He's saying to this man, your sins are forgiven. And you don't forgive someone unless they have done something against you. You can't forgive someone on behalf of someone else. And the reality is that every sin even if it involves sin against other people, is ultimately against God. No matter what we do, every sin that we commit is actually an act of rebellion against our creator. It's us seeking to live apart from and away from God. In the Old Testament, uh, there was King David, who you may be familiar with the story of David and Goliath. He was the shepherd boy who then fought the giant Goliath. Well, he grew up and he became king. And he committed adultery and then had a woman's wife murdered. Uh, yeah, a woman's husband murdered. And after this, he confessed his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of her husband Uriah. And he said these words to God in Psalm 51, 3 and 4. He says, for I know my transgressions. My sin is ever before me. And then he says, Against you, you only have I sinned. 
and done what is evil in your sight. Now certainly he sinned against Bathsheba, he sinned against Uriah, but ultimately his sin was against God. And the religious leaders, when Jesus says to this man, your, sin, your sins are forgiven, realize he's claiming to be God. He's committing blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And so we see even here at the very beginning of Mark's gospel that things are already starting to turn. Things are, things are moving towards this controversy that will ultimately lead to Jesus's own death. In verse 8, Jesus reads their thoughts. He knows what they're thinking. He says, why do you question these things in your hearts? Why are you thinking these things? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, rise, take up your bed, and go home? And that's actually an interesting question to reflect on, which is easier to say. But in some ways, it would seem easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's invisible. It's kind of difficult to, to prove or disprove whether that actually took place. But if you say to a person who can't walk, rise and go walk, well, if nothing happens, then you're going to be disproved. So Jesus puts it all on the line. Verses 10 and 11, he says, but that you may know that the son of man, which is Jesus's way of referring to himself, that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed and go home. To prove that I have the authority to forgive sins, I'm gonna show you that I have the power to heal. And there's a pause and silence and the stretcher probably starts to creak and it's a climactic moment when everybody in the room is fixated on this one question, is this man really a blasphemer? Or is he one who actually does have power and authority, not only to heal, but to forgive sins? What do you believe about Jesus? Do you believe that Jesus is able to forgive sins? For some of you, that might be a truth that you've heard and been told since you were little and you've not really questioned it, but does it impact the way that you engage in life, the way that you think about who you are? When you mess up, like I often do, and you mess up in a, in a big and maybe a, a semi-public way, you can't hide it, what do you do? Where do you run? If I'm honest, very often my inclination is to run to fix things, run to clean myself up, to clean up the mess I've made. Do you do that? Or do you run to Jesus for forgiveness? Well, the paralytic gets up. Mark says he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all. And so Jesus shows that he not only has the power to heal our physical bodies, but he also has the power and authority to forgive sins. And he's the only one that can do that. He's the great physician and the healer. And because that's the case, because Jesus is able to forgive sins and meet our deepest need, we're called to follow him wherever he might lead us. 
And Jesus invites all of us, everyone, no matter who you are, to come to him and have your deepest need met. He invites you to come in order to be spiritually healed, in order to be forgiven. And we're all called to respond to him. And we see in this passage the way that different people responded. The scribes and the religious leaders, they knew what was going on. They understood the situation. They knew the claims that Jesus was making, and they actually had all the evidence that they needed in front of them to evaluate Jesus's claims. And so the challenge to them and to people like us who might be critical or questioning or doubting Jesus's authority is to look at who he is and look at what he's doing and then to stop doubting and believe. But they didn't see their need of him. And unless we see our need of Jesus, we won't follow him. We won't believe. We won't trust him. Maybe you've got doubts about Jesus. Maybe you're a little bit skeptical, and I want to say welcome. This is a great place to wrestle with questions and doubts that you might have about Jesus and and who he is. But what Jesus would say to every one of us, how he would challenge us, is to look at ourselves and look at his assessment of us and see our own deepest need to see that we really are in need of healing, that we're really in need of forgiveness. And then to see that Jesus is the great healer, the only one who can actually meet that need and forgive us. So Jesus wants to help us to see our need of forgiveness so that we will come to him, whether for the first time or the 10,000th time, And one of the ways in which he draws us is by helping us to see and experience our own need. To see and feel our own sin. Sometimes he draws us to himself by allowing our own plans for our happiness and our own self-salvation strategies to kind of crumble and fall apart. There's a song uh, or a hymn that was written by John Newton former slave trader turned hymn writer who also wrote Amazing Grace, but he wrote a song called I Asked the Lord. And in it, it goes like this. He says, I asked the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. Essentially saying, look, I asked God to draw me closer. I want to know you more, experience you more, have a deeper relationship with you. That's a good thing. He says, "'Twas he that taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. God wants us to come near him, to know him. But he says, "'But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. I hoped that in some favored hour at once he'd answer my request, and by his love's constraining power subdue my sins and give me rest.'" How many times have you come to God and said, "'God, Help me in this struggle. I want to be free of this thing. I want this thing to go away. I hate it. It's yucky. Please take it from me. But that didn't happen right away. The hymn goes on. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. 
Yea, more with his own hand, he seemed intent to aggravate my woe. Crossed all the fair designs I schemed, cast out my feelings, laid me low. So all my fair designs, all my plans for how I could make myself happy and content, God took those and he just wiped them away like that sandcastle that I'd built in one wave, washes it all away. And so finally, the hymn writer says, Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Wilt thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst seek thy all in me. How are you, like me, maybe not inclined to go deep enough in our desires, in our requests from Jesus? How are you, maybe like me, sometimes inclined to focus just on surface needs that we think would make us happy and content? Jesus, just heal me of this disease or heal my loved one. Let me not have to worry about money anymore. Would you please fix my children? Would you please fix my marriage? Would you give me someone to love who really loves me? And none of these are bad things. In fact, most of the things, many of the things that we bring to Jesus and ask for are good things and things that he wants to be involved with things he really cares about. But here's the, here's the thing. If we make any of these other things ultimate, thinking that they will ultimately fulfill us, what they'll actually do is fail us. They'll inevitably fail you. Oh, if you get them, you might be content for a time. If that problem goes away, or things get better in this area of life, or that pain is eased, you, you may and very well be happy and content for a time, but it won't last. And if that's the thing that you've anchored your hope to, eventually your heart will sink with it. What if Jesus granted all of your requests, everything you asked for, and yet didn't give you forgiveness? What if you could have all the things that you thought would make you happy and yet you didn't experience real relationship, restored relationship with God? Do you know that you have been forgiven by God? And if you don't, this is a perfect opportunity for you to ask him for forgiveness because he promises that he will forgive every one of us who comes to him asking for it. But what, to what extent do you believe and embrace the fact that you've been forgiven by God? Maybe you have walked with Jesus, been a follower of his for, for years and for decades, and you know that you've been forgiven. But it's kind of a thing in the past that you that you maybe look at in the, in the rearview mirror, but it's not at the forefront of your mind. I'll be honest, after I had that accident that I told you about, um, where I broke my leg and my arm, every single day, probably 100 times a day for weeks and months, that was always at the forefront of my mind. I could feel the pain. 
I had a limp, I probably still do. And, uh, and I was always thinking about the fact that I almost died, but I was spared. But I'll be honest, that event is now almost 30 years in the past. And as I was preparing for this sermon, I came to the realization, well, I haven't even thought about that in so long. In years, this thing that was so significant about who I am that I'd been rescued and spared, I don't even think about it anymore. Is it possible that, that our being forgiven, if you are a follower of Jesus, is something that we know to be true, but we just don't think about that much? It doesn't shape the way that we think about who we are and whose we are. It doesn't shape the way that we relate to other people. And how should remembering that we've been forgiven affect the way that we relate to other people? Well, there's another song, another hymn called Did Christ Over Sinners Weep? And it goes, Did Christ over sinners weep and shall our cheeks be dry? How do you tend to think about people who are obviously caught in sin and maybe as of yet aren't even asking for forgiveness? They're not saying they're sorry. But how do you tend to think about them? As you see them in their desperation, does your heart go out to them? Do you long to see other people experience the kind of forgiveness that you've received? Even if right now they're obviously not even looking for it or asking for it. And are you modeling the kind of forgiveness that you really believe that you've received from God? Do you believe he's sufficient for you? That he's really able to fully and finally satisfy you? and meet your deepest need. What we see in this passage is that there is a difference between being a part of the crowd who looks on from afar and, and appreciates Jesus and is interested in what he's doing, but is noncommittal. There's a difference between that and being a disciple, a follower of Jesus who comes to him trusting that he's actually able to change me, believing that he desires to Jesus came in order that we might have life and have it abundantly. And it's worth our reflecting on Jesus's question to the scribes, um, which is easier? To say your sins are forgiven? Is it really easy for Jesus to say your sins are forgiven? When Jesus says this to the paralytic, the religious leaders accuse him of it's known as blasphemy, which was punishable by death. And so in doing this, when Jesus heals and forgives this man, he enters into conflict that will eventually lead to his own death. And that will be the cost of his offering forgiveness to that paralyzed man and to you and to me. It will be the cost of his own life. And we're called to respond to that. Respond to the fact that Jesus endured death in order that people like me, awful people like me, and people like you might ultimately experience restoration in our physical bodies, finally, when he returns to make all things new, but that we might right now experience restored relationship with God through forgiveness by what Jesus has done in his death and his resurrection. So how do we respond to that? Because Jesus calls all of us 
to respond to that, whether for the first time or maybe for the 10,000th time to respond to that forgiveness. He calls us to repent, which means to turn away from our sin, turn away from all of our efforts to rescue ourselves and turn to him to repent and to believe the gospel, to trust that Jesus and him alone is able to save us and give us life and then to follow him, which simply means to be a disciple. Sometimes it's only when we get a glimpse, maybe or a long stare at the depth of our own wickedness. When you wake up and you go, I can't believe I did that. How could I do that? My gosh, I'm a pastor, terrible, bad pastor. I'm a dad. I'm a horrible dad. I'm a husband. How could I do that again? My goodness. Sometimes it's only when we get a a clear and desperate sense of our own sin and we realize that, gosh, I have nothing good in me to offer, nothing that would really make anybody like me or love me. And yet Jesus still does. My goodness. Sometimes it's only when we realize that, that Jesus is all that we have, our only hope, that we're finally able to rest in the fact that he's really all that we need. It's only knowing that God loves you and being convinced in the depth of your heart that in spite of who you are and everything that you've done that he knows about, Jesus has forgiven you. It's only when you know that that your heart will be moved to want to follow him. And so the call to us is to regularly and often remember that we've been forgiven. Or if you've not yet trusted in Jesus, to run to him right now and ask for forgiveness. And then for us to be together, the kind of people that regularly remember and celebrate the fact that as it says on the walls and all kinds of literature around here, we're not perfect people. We're not people who have it all together. We're people that know that Jesus has forgiven us and that makes all the difference in our lives. And that's what shapes our thinking about what we're doing in this world together. Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are compassionate towards spiritually sick people like us. We thank you that you have shown your love toward us in that while we were still sinners and your enemies, you died for people like us and you offer us forgiveness. So would you cause your mercy to melt our hearts toward you, toward other people, so that we might be moved to love you and love those around us? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.